the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed in the program are not necessarily those of this radio station or its sponsors and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. You should always consult the appropriate advisor before making any financial decision. All rights reserved. Now, AM 1220 KNOW presents... New Focus on Wealth with Certified Financial Planner, Chad Burton, drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New Focus on Wealth. Get a new focus on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for New Focus on Wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, Certified Financial Planner. If you've got a money question for the show, just shoot me an email, chad at chadburton.com. Let me give you a quick update on uh, returns and the market as of before the market opens on August 17th for those listening on the podcast. And first of all, if you just take a look since the start of the quarter on July 1st, the NASDAQ, Russell Midcap, Russell Small Cap, all up over 18% since July 1st. So huge quarter to date returns. Stocks and bonds have both bounced back since about mid-June here. And so if we look at the year-to-date returns right now, total returns, so it includes dividends, S&P 500 down about 9%. we have got the Russell 2000 down about a little over 9%. Um, international developed down 13.75%. International, or uh, in emerging markets, rather, down about 15.6%. NASDAQ is still down 16% for the year, even though it was up, you know, up 18% since July. If something drops 50%, you got to get 100% rate of return to get break even, right? So it is a game of math. But what we've seen so far is earnings better than expected, but estimates continue to kind of push downwards going forward. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing that basically CPI slash inflation in general has likely peaked here, but some of the items are a little bit sticky. Things like rent, you know, the cost of living, isn't going to be as cheap in the next few years as it has been in the last decade or so. And a lot of it has to do with, of course, deglobalization, right? we got to get some supply chain back into the U.S. and in Mexico and places like that versus China. So between the supply chain issues, housing starts to the downside, a couple of other um, weak economic numbers out there. Just basically interesting news this week. Iran, Iranian oil potentially coming online again. Then we've got the inverted yield curve for the market opens today. I looked at the you know, two-year U.S. Treasury yielding 3.04%, numbers we haven't seen since 2007, and the 10-year Treasury at 2.79%. So you're getting paid more to hold a shorter-term bond from the U.S. government that's known as an inverted yield curve when you look at the twos and tens, which is typically, well, well recession's around the corner if you're not already in one. And... That's what the market was already stock market was already looking forward at until we got earnings this last few weeks that were a bit better than expected. But 
you know, you get, you got to look at this. It's it's we're not out of the woods yet here. A lot of people are calling this a bear market rally just because of supply chain issues and other things that uh, that we're dealing with. Um, so it's a good time now that stocks and bonds have both rallied up off the bottom. It's a good time to review your asset allocation because if you look at you know, 18, 18 and a half times forward earnings for the S&P 500 for the price to earnings ratio. That's not considered cheap. It's not considered cheap. Um, but you do have to look up the makeup of the S&P 500 is very tech heavy these days. Um, so the S&P 500 is down 9% for the year, but that's a market cap weighted index where a lot of the money is in the top 50 names of like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon. If you look at the RSP ETF, which is the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weighted Index, which is if you had $500, you'd literally, literally have a dollar in each of the companies equally weighted. It's only down 5.75% for the year. And that's a better example of overall asset allocation where you have some small, some mid, some large, not much small really, but at least you have some value and some growth, not just like exposure to the growth. Um, so good, good time to definitely revisit your asset allocation, you know, where your risk tolerance is, how close you are to retirement. I don't care if you're aggressive when you're going into retirement, but at least five years from retirement, you should know how much you're going to be drawing on your portfolio over and above your social security and pensions and things like that. You should have three years worth of portfolio draws in a very safe place, whether it's stable value in your 401k, stable value fund, um, you know, online FDIC insured bank, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Just something that says, okay, when I retire, I know that between my dividends and my interest, my social security and the cash, I can make it through any kind of a correction that the market offers us. Because when you're building wealth, it's easy, right? You just every two weeks, you're plugging money away into the stock market. You're not too worried about intermediate declines because the market's positive seven out of 10 years, typically. And you look at 15, 20 year periods, it averages 10, 11%. So time and math is on your side. But as you move into retirement, it becomes a wealth management. It becomes a distribution strategy. It becomes a situation where you've got to look at the overall market and say, okay, there's, there's the order of stock market returns that can get me. I know the stock market's likely going to average 10, 11% over the next 20 years. But it's what I do when the market's negative that can affect my returns in the long run. So you have to shelter yourself. You, you know you're going to have these corrections. You're going to know that they will rebound. I was telling you back you know, earlier in the year at the bottom that it's not the time to get out. Usually it's the time to buy when it feels the worst. But you, you do have to have a plan to live through the correction so you're not selling shares after they've dropped. Uh, boy, you know, I had a couple shows back talking to you about how I really like small cap value. And this is interesting because of the um, inflation bill that was passed, which most studies show that it's really not going to help fight inflation. It's really more of a, uh, you know, I don't know. I, let's just let's just leave it at that. But next year we're going to see that one percent. Um, tax on corporate buybacks. So I think that companies that are going to buy back stock, they're going to do it a little bit more this year. And then um, you, you got a minimum corporate tax over a certain size of a company. 
And then at the same time, a lot of small cap value companies are much more attractively priced than large cap companies. Um, and I'd mentioned how I like small cap value a while ago. Gosh, it's VBR, an ETF, um, that it, it, Vanguard's small cap value ETF, that's up 13.4% in the last month. So you've got to let these situations show that you know when, when it feels the worst to buy, that's when you should be buying because then you get these pretty sharp rallies. Um, and it's really a much better idea you make small moves rather than any major emotional moves. You've got to think about that when it comes to investing. Smaller moves are better than major emotional moves, especially if you're going all in or all out. And with rates finally ticking up a little bit again on the 10-year treasury, but getting closer to 3% again, if you've got a large amount of cash that's been on the sidelines, maybe you inherited it, maybe you, you know, your RSP, use it, work vested or something. Again, the best way to typically get that into a portfolio is to pick a time frame and average in. I usually like to say over four months or six months. Just pick it. And every two weeks, just put the money into the portfolio. Make sure it's diversified. Small cap, large cap, mid cap, international emerging markets. Now, do you have to adjust that sometimes? Yeah, because if you have retirement accounts and you have taxable accounts, you want your taxable accounts to basically hold your large cap stocks or large cap ETFs and funds, US index funds like uh, you know total stock market index funds and tax-free bonds. Whereas all the other stuff, emerging markets, small cap, commodities, real estate, those kind of things should, if you're still building wealth, those should be in your retirement accounts because they kick off a lot of tax burden on an annual basis. If it's inside your 401k or your IRA or your Roth, it's not going to kick off a tax consequence for you. So that's there's asset allocation and then there's asset location. Got it? So you got to create the pie chart and then make sure the slices of pie are in the correct accounts so that you can save money on taxes as you're building your wealth. But somebody at one of the highest tax brackets and they like real estate, so they were buying REITs in their taxable account because they didn't have a REIT fund available in their 401k. And I explained to them like, look, you're, this thing's yielding a little around 4%. You're losing half of that to taxes. Let's, let's shift things around and make it more tax efficient. I want to catch up on a couple of uh, email questions. And this one says, hi, Chad. Just want to get your take on if there's a rule of thumb for how much coverage one needs in relation to one's net worth for umbrella coverage. Also, have you ever heard of someone actually filing a claim and what were the circumstances? Thanks for your time. This is interesting because I was just having this conversation with uh, one of the people in our planning departments. And a typical rule of umbrella coverage, I mean, first of all, let's talk about what umbrella coverage is. Um, umbrella coverage is steps into place if your homeowners or your auto policy is just not enough. So in other words, most of the time you have an auto insurance policy that if, if you do something like, you know, you pull out of a parking lot and you crash into a van full of attorneys leaving a conference and you do a lot of damage, what happens is your policy covers you for $300,000 per occurrence and $100,000 per person. And so if you hit a handful of attorneys and they all sue you, you could easily exceed those limits if you think about that. 
So an umbrella policy would then kick in over the top of that. And typically people start with half a million dollar chunks of umbrella coverage. Half a million, million, 1.5 million. Um, and so the rule of thumb typically is two times your net worth minus your retirement accounts. And it depends on the state because certain states have more protections for retirement accounts and certain types of retirement accounts, whether it's a 401k or an IRA. That's a basic rule of thumb for that. So what's interesting is that those that live in the Bay Area, once you look at your net worth, which is your, you know, all of your assets, including your real estate, it's pretty easy to get into the high numbers. And then all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, five, six million dollars of umbrella coverage, which tends to be a little bit hard to get in some cases. A lot of times you have to go beyond your own homeowner's policy. And it also depends on what career you're in. Um, so a lot of people end up maxing out at about, you know, somewhere between two and five million before they, you know, truly get to two times their net worth. And this is an interesting question because this month marks 29 years for me in the business. Um, got started at a very, very early age uh, while I was going to college, earned my certified financial planner designation and just fell in love with the business. So been here for a long time. And I will say that I have never had a single client be actually sued and have to put a claim into their umbrella coverage. So I will, I will tell you that. Um, now, have I seen somebody get into an auto accident and then the initial request was for above the auto limits? Yes, but then it's settled for at the typical auto limits. So I will say that. You kind of have to think about your lifestyle and, and where the risks are. Um, for example, you know, I've, I've loaded up on umbrella coverage because I've got three teenage drivers in the household. So, you know, think about that a little bit. <laughs> so, think, um, so and, and, you know, we're boating all the time with lots of people and friends on the boat and things like that. So it, the typical rule of thumb is you get two times your net worth minus your retirement accounts. And, but, you know, if you're starting to go above the $5 million range, that's when you're kind of like, okay, that, that's probably enough because I've never seen somebody get sued with that. I'd be really interested though, to hear from a listener or anybody that, that, that has in a situation like that. All right, let's, let's move on to the next one because I got an email from Mike and a couple of shows ago, I was talking about places to keep cash and there's all these online FDIC insured banks. Um, a good place to go is uh, to get an idea of where they are uh, is NerdWallet, for example. NerdWallet.com um, has links to a lot of them. But if you think about where do you keep cash and you want to get like 1.5% to 1.75% on your cash, FDIC insured, you can open up an online bank account. You got Marcus, you got Capital One 360. Even Lending Club has turned from those microloans into an FDIC insured bank. Um, we use Flourish for clients. Uh, and what was interesting is one of our planners, Brad Stacy, was looking at his own personal account and he was getting a rate much, much lower than was published online. So I, I told you all about it to be careful and see what your online banks are truly paying because sometimes you have to open up a new account and move money. And so I got an email from Mike. He said, Chad, you were right. 
I've got an old Capital One account earning only 0.3% interest. In order to get 1.5%, I need to open another account. I have a 360 savings account and I need to have a 360 performance savings account to get the 1.5%. So what, what an annoying thing. It's like, just give me the rate. Why do I have to jump through hoops and open up more accounts to get the rate? Just give them the rate. But the lesson is, is that you need to check your online savings account. So again, the proper amount of safe money for most families is six months of expenses to 12 months worth of expenses. And when you look at your expenses, you have to say, okay, what does it co- you know, cost me to keep the lights on in the house, the food on at the table, my mortgage paid, and all of my you know, basic expenses? So six to 12 months. Now, there's a lot of people that transfer jobs a lot. Um, I'm not seeing as much as I used to, but I mean, most of the time in the tech industry, especially in sales, people would move jobs a lot. And when that occurred during a recession where the Bay Area tends to fall the hardest and but rebound the quickest, you know, some of those people might be better off having, you know, 18 to 24 months worth of expenses saved up in case you go through a, a tough time, a tough recession. Um when you go into retirement, at least five years from retirement, you have to calculate this differently. It's not I it's not three years worth of expenses, it's three years worth of portfolio draws that I talk about all the time. So if you are spending 100 grand a year, but you're getting 50 grand a year from pension and social security, your portfolio draws 50 grand a year, you need 150 grand in cash, period. It's been my hard and fast rule that you guys have been hearing me talk about since 1999 on radio, and it's gotten you through many market corrections. So stick with that strategy. It allows you to be even a little bit more aggressive with the rest of your portfolio. All right, this is a good question from Riley. You know, a lot of catch up here. Riley asks, and I'm about to go into this next segment, do you ever trade options instead of stocks? Do you ever trade options instead of stocks? Well, lots of different types of options out there. You have, you can sell covered call options where if you own a stock, let's say you own uh, a stock in a company trading at 10 bucks a share, you could sell a call, get some cash put into your account and you're selling the right to somebody else to buy that stock from you at $12 a share, for example. So if the stock rallies up to $13, that person gets to buy it from you for 12 and you pocket the sale of the stock and the cash from the option. There's protective puts that you can buy. There's a combination of puts and calls. Way I look at options is a strategy to protect wealth or deal with something that you know you want to do. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases always packed pass or the wait. I get to choose from 100,000 trips pass. The will it be the beach, city, mountains, or all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirato Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. Learn more at inspiratopass.com. Riley was asking, do I ever trade options instead of stocks? Now, the most common options are calls and puts. And you can do a combination of it. But you can either buy a call option, which let's say you, um, you you think the a stock is going to go up, but you don't want to commit a lot of capital to it. So let's say you're looking at Apple trading at $173 a share and you think it's going to go up, but you're not quite sure. You could buy some call options that say, you know, 180 for a certain amount of money. And if the stock goes up to 190, you have the right to buy it at 180. 
You could also be that person that sells the call option. So you could be holding Apple at 173 and you could sell a call on Apple that gives the right to somebody else to buy the stock from you at 190 and you get paid for that. You get a premium. It's taxes, capital gains that comes into your account um, if it's a taxable account. Uh, and essentially, you can ride the stock up, but it's going to be sold at a certain price if it really rallies. All right. So then you can buy protective puts, which says, okay, I want to buy a put on Apple at 160. And that way, if it drops to 150, I have the ability to sell it at 160. So that's a, a protective put. You're, you're limiting some downside. So do I ever trade options instead of stocks? I don't trade them to build wealth. Now, are some people successful at it? Yeah, there's people that will sit in front of their computer all day long as, tr- as a trader and you know use calls and puts and options to, to try to build wealth there. Um, you know, those people do exist. Now, have I ever met them that's totally outperformed the market in the long run? No, not really. (laughs) I haven't. So I consider options as a way to protect wealth, a way to create some income on something you don't need to necessarily sell or to create some sort of a known outcome you're willing to deal with. So... The first example is selling a cover call. So this is for people that have a large concentrated stock position. Um, and, you know, you can still do this on certain ETFs, like, you know, large ETFs like S&P 500. So if you got a bunch of, you know, a certain ETF, you can sell calls as well. But let's say you're sitting there, it's, it's August, and you really don't want to sell something to create some income right now because you're going to pay a large capital gain. You have a very low cost basis. You're going to pay a large capital gain and you're not necessarily wanting to sell right now because you still think that there's some upside and you're trying to push the tax consequence of a large sale into next year. You can take a position, like I mentioned, let's say it's Apple. Um, the ones that I've been doing a lot with lately are Apple and Cisco, um, Oracle, some you know places that I have clients that have large concentrated stock positions. And you can sell some calls that say, okay, you get a premium somewhere. It depends on the size, but you get it, you know, four or 5% of the value of what you're selling calls on dumped into your account. And that allows you to ride the stock up to a certain point. But at a certain point, whether it's, you know, 12, 15, 20% away from the current price, the stock is going to be called away from you. Somebody else is going to have the right to buy it. So what happens is if the if you sell calls on that stock and the stock goes down or is flat, you you win. You've got the premium that cushioned the downside. If the stock goes way up and starts to rally, well, you still participated in the upside and you have the ability to buy those calls back at a loss to avoid the sale of the stock and paying the taxes. So the point is, is it's not a way to build wealth. You're trying to create some excess income on a position that you don't necessarily want to sell yet. All right. So when to use that? If you if you have, let's say you have a boring stock, you want to trim it, but you believe the stock is going to, you know, kind of remain flat. You don't necessarily want to pay the taxes. You want to try to create some extra income. You can do that. 
Or if you're trying to put the sale off until next year, like you're still working, or maybe you did a large IRA to Roth conversion, so you're trying to avoid a huge tax hit that'll screw up your tax situation, and you want to create a little bit of income off the stock, that's when you can do some sell some covered calls. I mean, JP Morgan has a fund that's getting very popular that does this on the S&P 500 to create some extra yield, right? It's, it's a covered call strategy on the S&P 500 and it creates some extra yield. No, it limits the upside, right? The, the, when you see a rally in a fund like this or in a stock, the upside is limited. So it's not going to go up as much, but the income can buffer some of the downside. Now, the other situation where planners can use options to protect a position is, again, let's say you have a, a highly concentrated position and you don't want to sell it. You don't necessarily need the income, but you, you want to do some protection because you might want to sell it, let's say, next year. And if this, you're still worried, though, about downside risk by quite a bit, you're worried about the downside. You're like, gosh, I don't want to sell it now, but I am worried about the downside of the stock. So you can sell some covered calls, which gives the right to somebody else to buy the stock from you if it really rallies. And you can use the income that you receive from the covered calls to provide, to buy protective puts. So it creates a known situation around the stock. You know it can only go down this far, but you also know that your upside is limited. That's a caller situation. So for people that have highly concentrated stock positions, you got to say, are, are you worried about the downside risk? Are you trying to put off the sale? Are you trying to create some excess income from a boring stock? I mean, you know, I guess Cisco you could kind of think about as it's been kind of a, a, a boring stock, right? Um, over the last one year, it's down 14.5%. They continue to have some kind of like, you know, basic missteps that revenue growth is extremely flat. I mean, five-year growth is at what, 0.23%. But the dividend yield is kind of nice, three point two five percent, and um, the you know PE ratio forward is only about thirteen. So it's like eh, there's not a lot of catalyst to push that thing up. It's got a nice dividend. If I have a hard, light, large, highly concentrated stock position, I know I want to start trimming the stock over time. I might start selling some covered calls on it to create a little bit extra income, but still maintain that dividend. See what I'm saying? So there's some strategies like that out there. When it comes to highly concentrated stock positions, which I run into all the time dealing with the Bay Area, because a lot of people built a lot of their wealth by working for a company and getting a lot of stock options, which leads me to the next question from Caitlin. Caitlin says, what is the best way to handle my remaining RSUs? They vest quarterly and they automatically sell some shares to pay the taxes. Now, this is a great question because it's a great question, but it's also a hard question because you deal with people that built a ton of wealth in the Bay Area by you know working for companies like Apple and Facebook and other ones that they get their stock options and RSUs and they held on to them. And they're, yeah, they're super highly concentrated wealth in one stock, but they're also wealthy. So it's hard to argue with younger people that want to accumulate the stock if so if, if you're a new employee, like you're a younger new employee with a really good company, 
I don't mind people just putting their head down and accumulating for a few years. If they're putting enough money into the 401k to get the match, they're funding a Roth IRA, um, saving some money outside, and they're, and they're allowing their RSUs or options to vest and accumulate, um, you know, fine. Get some concentrated wealth, but eventually you're going to have to do something different as you, as you age and you don't have too much money in, in one stock. Now, RSUs are the most common options now. RSUs, restricted stock units, that's as they vest, they become 100% taxable to you. There is no tax reason for continuing to hold them. They vest, they're 100% taxable. They sell some shares to, to withhold some taxes. But if you sold the rest of the remaining shares right now or hold them, there's no tax benefit either way. It's different between non-qualified incentive stock offers. It's a whole different story. But RSUs are the most common type. So as people are older and they've already accumulated way too much money in a specific company stock that they work for, sell the rest of the RSUs and start investing them. And whether it's an index fund, a total stock market index fund, or whatever, diversify out of that company stock as you age. So as those RSUs vest, just get in a habit of selling the remaining shares, moving it over into your favorite brokerage account, and for the first 250 grand, just buy an index fund, like you know, uh, S and P 500, or even better, a total stock market index. So you have some small and mid cap exposure, which should do better over a you know 20 plus year period. So as you're younger, though, it's it's fine to accumulate. A good chunk of your wealth and you're into your company that you work for because you got the ESPP, you got the RSUs, and, and again, lots of wealth created with companies like Apple. But you will get to a point where you own too much, where you're getting a paycheck from that company. You're getting all your benefits from that company. And then your entire retirement is dependent on that company if you own too much of that one stock. So you do need to start having a plan to diversify and um, get ready for retirement. Because by the time you go into retirement, you don't really want more than 5% of your worth in a single company. You, you really don't. Um, that's just too much single company risk. And then you get a major misstep or a block of growth. Um, I mean, just look at Facebook or Meta's decline this year. Big declines can happen. And that's a really scary thing to have happen to you when you're in retirement you have a limited resource to last 35 plus years. I'm going to try to talk about some cryptocurrency issues now. And I think the funniest meme I ever saw on it was take everything you don't understand about math, everything you don't understand about computers and everything you don't understand about currency and put them all together. And that's cryptocurrency. And yesterday on the news was so much chatter about the Ethereum merge that's supposed to take place next month. Ethereum, which is um, only second to Bitcoin in terms of the largest cryptocurrency, the goal is to reduce its carbon footprint by over 99%. So as CNET says, cryptocurrency critics argue that coins like Bitcoin and Ether are useless and consume enormous amounts of electricity. Now, the first one is polarizing and subjective, they say, right? Uh, but the second is definitely true. You've got these huge warehouses of servers and computers that are just, uh, you know, have been set up next to 
hydro energy and all these other places that it's, I mean, it's not good for the environment. It is taking a lot of power, a lot of energy, and it's just not going to work. These warehouses of supercomputers validate the blockchain and they get paid to do so. I can't explain all of what that means, but it's called proof of work. By these computers solving these problems and validating the blockchain, it's called proof of work. In this merge that's going to happen, Ethereum will adopt a system known as proof of stake. (laughs) So, wait, this gets even more complicated, right? Now, this has been planned since 2014, but it's very complex. A lot of money is at risk, like $183 billion or something like that. And it used to be called Ether 2.0. When the proof of stake comes into effect, miners will no longer have to solve cryptographic uh, puzzles to verify new blocks. Instead, they'll deposit Ether tokens into a pool. Okay, so does this get even more imaginary or what? Imagine each of these tokens is a lottery ticket, CNET says. If your token number is called, you win the right to verify the next blockchain and earn the rewards that entails. Ooh, this is getting like Willy Wonka. Do you get a chocolate bar too with your Ether coin? So what's interesting is that, okay, you got to pay to play, right? Prospective block verifiers who will be known as validators instead of miners need to stake a minimum of either of 32 Ether, which is 48,500 to be eligible. So I want a t-shirt that says I am a validator. Right, so I, I might do this just so I can get a T-shirt, a chocolate bar, and some ether. Why is this called the merge? Ethereum will transition from proof of work to proof of stake through a merging of two blockchains. The Ethereum blockchain that people use is known as I'm going to butcher this. I always do Mainit, M A I N N E T. Is distinguished from various testnet blockchains that are used only by developers. In December 2020, Ethereum developers created a new network called the Beacon Chain. The Beacon Chain is essentially the new Ethereum. And so they got to merge these things together. And some critics of Ethereum saying this is such, most of those are Bitcoin enthusiasts, that um, CNAT, their example is basically saying it's like changing an engine on an airplane mid-flight there's $183 billion worth of Ether in circulation. Now, Ethereum is extremely interesting because the, 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 the blockchain, the way it works itself is uh, in decentralized finance. The world of finance is changing pretty quickly. And it changed a lot in the 29 years that I've been in the business. When I got into the business 29 years ago, if somebody wanted to buy a stock, they'd have to call up a broker. And if you wanted to buy shares of GE back then, it would cost you a commission of 2% to buy and 2% to sell. Right? So if you're trading $100,000, that's a lot of money. And then we eventually got Firms like Bidwell and TD Ameritrade and um, or it used to be Ameritrade and Bidwell. And that started the, you know, at one point it was $19.99 a trade, $19.99. And then eventually we got to free. 
So now you can buy stocks and ETFs without a transaction cost at Fidelity, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, all these companies. So it's changed a lot, but now there's these de- decentralized finance situations where you can you be able to use cryptocurrency to buy securities and have zero settlement time. So usually when you sell a stock, you can't pull the money out of your brokerage account for three days, T plus three, they call it. But now it's becoming immediate. And then certain financial products, whether it's bonds or different types of options, eventually insurance contracts, they're all going to be issued based on the blockchain. I believe countries like Estonia are already already, um, uh, using the blockchain in terms of proof of who you are so that you can vote. So blockchain is here to stay. Cryptocurrency is here to stay. Now, has it proven to be a good diversifier? Absolutely not. It's trading exactly like risk assets right now. It has not been a diversifier. It has not been the new gold. It has not done as well as people expected. It should have rallied a lot for people in Russia that wanted to get out of their currency, Venezuela. It just hasn't done what it was supposed to and in, in, you know, thought it was going to do. But it's here to stay. And it's you know maybe down 50% for the year, but it's up a huge amount over like a two-year period. So it's still the wild, wild west. It's going to be very interesting to see how this Ethereum merge plays out, what the price will do afterwards, and if they can truly reduce the carbon footprint. Because that has been a big issue with Bitcoin and and miners and then that just how bad it is for the environment. Hope that made sense. I needed to look at it myself, so I thought I'd tell you about it. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show. You can find the podcast at chadburton.com. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.